afternoon, Tri-States. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. This is Ken in my Friday Reader Seat, reading from the Friday, January 20th edition of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Know that this is also brought to you in part by Dupaco and the R.W. Hafer Foundation. Well, my listeners, I've just discovered that there is no print edition and no electronic edition from which I read of the Telegraph Herald for today because they ran into a significant malfunction and were unable to print the paper. What they have done, apparently, is updated the news. It is on the uh, Internet, uh, but I'm uncertain if I might be reading some of yesterday's news or not. If I am, I give you my greatest apologies, but I will be looking for all of the updated articles that have been updated within the last few hours, suggesting to me that they are the current pieces of news for Friday. For those who might be getting a print edition in addition to listening to me, for other members of the family perhaps, it is supposed to be printed later this afternoon. That's the intention at least. But for now, let me read from the updated articles first of our local news. Our top story, and we'll presume it would be the one on the front page, As home ownership gap persists, local residents, groups, eye opportunities. Alex and Angela Lee had what could be described as the dream home buying process. It hadn't been their first impulse. Both originally from Chicago, but years-long Dubuque residents, he came in December 2016 and she followed two years later, They lived comfortably in a two-bedroom apartment on Lower Main through the birth of their first child and the beginning of the master's program they both enrolled in at the University of Dubuque. We had talked about buying a house, but rent was cheap, Alex said. The COVID-19 pandemic started to move the needle for them. One of their hobbies during lockdown became driving around neighborhoods seeking for sale signs and comparing listing prices. Still, they only really started looking in November 2021 after Angela became pregnant with their second daughter. As a young black couple, they were expecting a degree of adversity which the posts they saw on Facebook groups for first-time home buyers didn't help allay. But they were pre-approved quickly by their lender, Green State Credit Union, and found a house in the neighborhood they wanted, with the right number of bedrooms and bathrooms, an attached two-car garage, and a nice backyard. The Lees ended up buying the home for less than the asking price during a winter slowdown in home buying and got a mortgage in which they could purchase the house without a down payment. We had heard horror stories from other people, and we got so lucky, Angela said. The Lees joined a small group of minorities in Dubuque who own their homes. There remains a nationwide racial gap in home ownership between white and non-white households. 
The gap nationally is particularly stark between white and black households, which had the highest and lowest home ownership rates among racial groups at 74.6% and 45.2% in the third quarter of 2022. The most recent similar figures for the city of Dubuque comes from the 2014-18 Comprehensive Housing Affordability Strategy data compiled by Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque. At that time, 67% of white households owned their homes compared to 30% of Asians, 9% of blacks, and virtually no Native Americans or Pacific Islanders. Data recently released by U.S. Census Bureau provides a snapshot of home ownership in Dubuque County from a different perspective. According to the Bureau's five-year estimates for 2017 to 2021, there were 39,534 occupied housing units in Dubuque County. Of those, an estimated 29,095, or 73.6%, were owner-occupied. Of the owner-occupied housing units in the county, 97.6% were owned by white residents. The county's population is 91.2% white. Among owner-occupied units, 0.8% were owned by residents identifying as Hispanic or Latino. 0.6% identified as Black or African American, 0.7% identified as Asian, 0.1% identified as American Indian, 0.1% identified as some other race, and 0.04% identified as Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander. More than a half century after federal law outlawed most forms of housing discrimination, the home ownership gap remains the status quo across America. According to Jung Choi, a senior research associate at Housing Finance Policy Center at Urban Institute, a nonprofit research organization, no American city to date has closed the housing gap. Contributing factors include gaps in income between whites and minorities, a lack of generational wealth more common among the latter group, and a disparity in financial literacy sometimes seen regarding topics such as down payments, credit scores, and debt. Mortgage lenders, real estate agents, and City of Dubuque government all are taking steps to address those barriers and make the home buying process more equitable. Home ownership is a key building block for wealth in the United States. According to a National Association of Realtors report from January, a home purchased at the national median sale price of $169,000 in 2011 would have accumulated $225,000 in home equity if the home were sold at 2021's median sale price of $369,000. The median value of a primary residence is worth about 10 times as much as a family's financial assets, the same report noted. 
Historically, racial minorities, particularly black people, faced the denial of mortgage loans to certain neighborhoods, called redlining, and were kept out of other neighborhoods through direct action by real estate agents, called steering, along with other discriminatory practices such as racial covenants, which is language in property deeds that explicitly excluded non-whites from owning the property. The Dubuque County Recorder's Office has started to sift through property deeds looking for historic racial covenants. So far, it has found 72 homes in a subdivision whose deeds contained racial covenants dated between the 1920s and 1940s. Racial covenants were ruled unenforceable by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1948, and other racially discriminatory practices, such as redlining and steering, were outlawed outlawed by the Fair Housing Act of 1968. But those decades of legal racism created a gap in home ownership, and the gap remains to this day. Minority groups weren't even able to come to the table to get home mortgages into the 60s, said Joe Preby, a sociology instructor at Northeast Iowa Community College. And by the time they got to the table, for one, they had very little wealth. Today, there's a national black-white home ownership gap of about 30 percentage points, comparable to the gap in 1960, before the passage of the Fair Housing Act. According to the most recent data, Dubuque's gap was nearly double that, and there was a considerably lower black home ownership rate than the national rate of 45.2%. Several factors continue to perpetuate the home ownership gap in Dubuque. For one, Experts, such as Choi, say continued disparities in home ownership can be attributed in part to differences in income, and there is a considerable racial income gap in Dubuque. Per Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque data, whites had the second highest median household income among racial groups in Dubuque in 2020, after Asians at $57,063, while Pacific Islanders and Blacks had the third lowest and lowest household incomes at 34338 and $12,068, respectively. Some of the difficulties, they show up as minority difficulties, but they're also simply poverty-related issues, said Lauren Rice, an associate professor of accounting and business at Clark University. Having fewer economic opportunities makes it difficult for anybody to buy a home. Differences in generational wealth also play into the home ownership gap. Since owning a home generates equity for families, lacking a home-owning parent means a first-time home buyer has fewer financial means at their disposal. If you have a home-owning parent with sufficient housing wealth, you actually get support for a down payment, Choi said. Black households are less likely to have a home-owning parent and are less likely to have support for a down payment. The lack of a home-owning parent or family member also translates to a lack of financial literacy surrounding home ownership. It's not just an innate process like, hey, I know how to apply for a mortgage, Rice said. 
The whole process is much more difficult for families who have not owned a home than families who have owned a home. He added, it's not a matter of intelligence, just experience. Jacqueline Hunter, an assistant professor of education at Clark College and former director of Dubuque's Multicultural Family Center, struggled with that knowledge gap when trying to buy a home in Dubuque, which she eventually did in 2019. She first bought a home in Kissimmee, Florida, while working for the Osceola County School District, but lost it in the fallout of the subprime mortgage crisis. She had been the first person in her family to own a house. It was just a mess, Hunter said. When I went in for the loan, I didn't understand how the dynamics of home ownership worked. In Dubuque, after her application for pre-approval was rejected, Hunter sought out another lender via Navy Federal Credit Union and pursued a crash course in building credit and paying off debt at the suggestion of a Naval Federal employee. She played videos on the subject constantly as she went about her day, the way other people listened to podcasts or books on tape. It was a months-long, self-guided journey, but it worked. She was approved for a loan on her second attempt. In her crash course on raising credit and paying off debt, she realized how little she knew the first time around. For example, she had been unaware that as an Army veteran, she qualified for a home loan with the Federal Department of Veterans Affairs. I think we navigate in this world from the self-deception that everyone has the same information as everyone else and they know what to do with it, Hunter said. Hunter was able to improve her status as a borrower relatively quickly, which isn't always the case. Consider Bakoff and Juliet Asaito, Marshall Islanders, who natives who have lived in Dubuque since 1999. While they have been happy renting for the most part for the past two decades, the unit they share with six of their children and their husky, Nala, is getting cramped. And Bakoff said they realized the $650 they pay in rent wasn't going anywhere but to their landlord. Their kids want more space outside, too, where they can host their friends and where Bakoff can barbecue. They want a big backyard, Bakoff Saito said. Not super big, enough to do something in. But before they can do that, the couple will have to pay off a $6,000 medical bill that Bakoff incurred while unemployed and uninsured that went to collections. Buckoff said he paid about $1,000 of the bill, but until it's fully paid off, the collection will continue to have a negative impact on his credit score. The couple applied for pre-approval for a home loan, but say they haven't heard back. Jared Levy, a realtor with Exit Realty, said he has seen his clients, including some close friends, struggle with debt they did not even know they had until they applied for a loan. He had dealt with a debt going to collection himself with an unpaid utility bill from a college apartment that affected his credit without his knowing about it. Collections can negatively affect credit scores for years. You can't fix a bad credit overnight, Levy said. You have to pay it off, and you just can't get high credit while it's there. As immigrants to Dubuque and the U.S., the Saitos also have to navigate a home-buying process that can be radically different from that in their home country. 
at Presentation Lantern Center in Dubuque, staff and volunteer tutors often deal with clients who seek help buying a home alongside receiving tutoring on English and the citizenship test. But house hunting is a trickier process. We don't have a high level of success in home buying, said tutor Tom Logaitis. Part of that is cultural as well as financial literacy. Many families in the Marshall Islands, for example, live in multi-generational housing on land passed down generation to generation. That's how the Saitos lived before they came to Dubuque. While in many Latin American countries, Logaitis said, people don't finance homes but rather buy them outright. The lack of institutional knowledge also makes Lantern Center clients more vulnerable to shady loans or scams, he said. As a unit, we have an overall concern about whether people are going to get a fair break, Legaitis said. So we refer them to people who we think are going to give them a fair break. Even their best candidates for home ownership can struggle. Asad Chahudi who moved to the U.S. from Bangladesh seven years ago, has been trying to buy a home since 2020. He made considerable progress on a home in Asbury, Iowa in 2020, getting pre-approval for a loan and going far enough to make an earnest payment to a homeowner. The home was exactly what he was looking for. It was near his sister, who also lives in Asbury, and in the boundary for Carver Elementary School, where he wants to send his children to school. It was also close to the only mosque in the tri-state area and to the cemetery in which his father is buried. But then his mother got sick, and Chowdhury pulled out of the deal in order to pay for her treatment. And then home prices surged in the local area. Today, that same home is priced at $80,000 more than when he was going to buy it. That one I'm missing, he said. Good house. The Federal Reserve also repeatedly raised interest rates in recent months, which has increased the cost of a monthly payment on a mortgage. So unless he finds the perfect house, Chowdhury will delay his home buying plans for now. If the payment is 40, 50, 60% higher, there are a lot of homes you're interested in that are not in your price range anymore, Rice said. And for the first-time home buyers, that may mean none of them are in your price range anymore. Rice said high interest rates eventually will drive home prices down. That's what they're supposed to do. But right now, Dubuque is in a lag period, where that hasn't been happening yet. Real estate agents, lenders, and the city of Dubuque have moved in recent years to try to create a more equitable path to home ownership. The city has several federally funded first-time homebuyer programs offering long-term, zero-interest, $5,000 loans, which can help homebuyers clear hurdles, like raising money for a down payment. Homebuyers making 30% or less of area median income can also apply for a $25,000 loan with a five-year deferral through the federal Section 8 program. Those loans require that candidates complete a virtual module on home buying education, which covers everything from working with realtors and lenders to steps after buying a home, said Carla Escobar, City Housing Financial Specialist. Since the city's 2021-22 fiscal year, the city has assisted 38 households, 16% of which were minority households. 
City housing staff also are working to develop a credit repair program proposed in the fiscal year 2023 Community Development Block Grant Action Plan. Jeff Hafel, president-elect of East Central Iowa Association of Realtors, said he is working to create a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee following similar decisions by the state and National Association of Realtors that would address barriers for both minority clients and minority realtors. Local credit unions also are focused on assisting aspiring homeowners. Topaco Community Credit Union offers a home ownership webinar and other educational resources for home buyers and money and mortgage makeovers meant to improve members' viability as loan candidates. With its Money Match program, the credit union even matches savings for a home dollar for dollar up to $4,000 for households at or below 300% of the poverty line. Dutrack Community Credit Union also offers financial literacy classes. Senior Vice President for Marketing and Development, Jason Norton, also singled out the credit union's web tool that allows potential home buyers to calculate the comprehensive cost of a home purchase, including expenses such as earnest payments and home inspections. Norton said while Dutrack did not offer programs specifically targeted toward minorities, there was increasing awareness in the banking industry of the disparity in home ownership rates. Matt Dodds, chief operating officer at Dupaco, said the credit union in recent years has more closely examined issues such as the national disparities in home mortgage approval rates. Urban Institute calculated only 13.6% of whites were denied a loan in 2020, compared to 21.9% of Hispanics and 27.1% of blacks. Dodds said the credit union's effort focused on financial literacy and home ownership prospects for all residents. It has nothing to do with minority homeowners. It has to do with all homeowners, Dodds said. Green State Credit Union has pledged $1 billion in home loans to people of color, half of which is earmarked for black people specifically. The move puts its minority clients ahead of profit, said Lindsay Kennedy, Green State Vice President and Business Development Director. In the short term, you can't look at it as something that will make you money, she said. That commitment means the lender can have a higher tolerance for lower credit scores or a higher debt-to-income ratio or use consistent rent payments as a proxy for a borrower's financial stability, which was actually common before credit scores were introduced. Canada, who is black, argued lenders as well as others involved in the home buying process need to consciously change their rules to address the home ownership gap. We're part of the problem, whether it's intentional or unintentional, she said. We all have to do something wrong. We all have to be doing something wrong. Yes, we are all part of the problem indeed. Our next story. Dubuque veterans discuss military sexual trauma with lawmakers, National Guard leader. Two Dubuque veterans of the Iowa National Guard are battling to increase awareness and services for women like them who experience sexual assault while serving in the military. We are not selfish or asking for special treatment, said Amy Ball of Dubuque while meeting with lawmakers representing Dubuque County on Thursday in Des Moines. We just want to care we were promised the care we, that was on the contract. 
We want the care that we were promised. Ball served in the Iowa National Guard from 1996 to 2006, and her service included two tours in Iraq. Dawn Fleming, also of Dubuque, served on active duty from 2004 to 2019, a period that included a tour in Afghanistan. She is now a reserve member as well as child care director at Hills and Dales. On Thursday, Ball and Fleming toured the Iowa State Capitol and watched Major General Ben Corral's 2023 Condition of the Guard address in the House of Representatives chamber, after which they were introduced by Iowa Representative Chuck Eisenhart, Dubuque Democrat, and given a round of applause from the full House. Ball and Fleming also had a mission as members of Tri-State Women's Warriors, a group of female veterans who gathered to support one another through a number of issues. The pair brought two leading issues to Carell in a private conversation after his address. Military sexual trauma resulting from sexual assault between service members and the lack of mental health services needed to care for the condition. I've just cut that article short, even though it came up on today's page. That was from last Thursday, the 13th. Let's look at some of our Tri-State news that is updated just now. Water main break prompts Makoka to school to cancel today's classes. Friday, up in the air. Well, that was updated 15 minutes ago. Classes in Makoka to school have been called off for the second straight day. District officials canceled classes on Thursday because the school did not have water after a water main break nearby. As of 5 p.m. Thursday, that water main break still was being worked on. A message from Makokota Community School District Superintendent Tara Knotts at about 6 a.m. today states that the school is starting to have access to water, but it not, is not adequately heated yet. However, our boiler system is not fully functioning, which controls our heating system, she wrote in the message. We will continue to work on this today and over the weekend and plan to have school on Monday. Classes at other schools in the district were held as normal Thursday and will be again today. In TH First, Dubuque to add full-time parking officers to boost revenue and recruitment. In an effort to boost revenue, the City of Dubuque is increasing the number of hours city employees spend monitoring parking meters and writing tickets. City Council members this week voted unanimously to eliminate three of the city's six part-time parking enforcement officer positions and replace them with two full-time positions. The city currently employs five part-time parking enforcement officers, all of whom work less than 30 hours per week, while a sixth position has remained vacant for more than a year. As a result, the city effectively is changing two of the positions from part-time to full-time. Once those full-time positions are filled, city-employed parking enforcement officers collectively will work an additional 1,212 hours annually, according to city council documents. The city's parking enforcement officers are responsible for monitoring public parking meters, along with issuing tickets for vehicles parked in spaces with expired meters. City Transportation Services Director Ryan Kanuki recommended the move. He said the city is unable to properly enforce its metered parking spaces with only part-time employees, and city officials said full-time positions with benefits will reduce the turnover the department now faces as part-time officers leave for full-time jobs elsewhere. 
With two full-time officers, Kanucky said the city both will boost its parking revenue and assist small businesses downtown by ensuring that nearby parking spots do not remain occupied for prolonged periods of time. It keeps people honest downtown, he said. It keeps our downtown cleaner and flowing in a positive way for the city. Even with the elimination of three part-time positions, the hiring of two full-time officers will cost the city an additional $45,591 annually. Kanucky said after the council meeting that he is determining whether the Transportation Services Department has enough leftover funds budgeted in the current fiscal year to fill the positions immediately, or if the department must wait until funds become available in fiscal year 2024, which begins July 1. A scheduled provided to city council members shows that the current roster of five part-time officers has several gaps in parking coverage. On Mondays through Fridays, for instance, residential districts are not monitored by parking enforcement officers at all. Kanucky said that when the two full-time parking enforcement officer positions are filled, the city will be able to monitor parking meters at all times that they are active, which the city hopes will boost parking ticket revenue. The city's annual parking ticket revenue has seen a significant drop since the COVID-19 pandemic, as the number of tickets issued has fallen markedly. In fiscal years 2018 and 19, parking ticket revenue surpassed $350,000. Since fiscal year 2020, parking ticket revenue has not managed to break $260,000. Kanucky said current parking ticket revenues for fiscal year 2023 also remain low. However, public parking occupancy in general has failed to rebound since the pandemic. Recent data collected by the city showed that in September, November, and December, Dubuque's city-owned parking ramps consistently were about 30% occupied on average, and a survey of parking on September 15th by the city found on-street parking only had reached 31% occupancy. City Council Member Susan Farber said she remains optimistic that the creation of the full-time positions will help generate more parking ticket revenue and ensure that businesses have nearby parking spaces available for customers. We need to have people who are complying with parking downtown, she said. I think it will be a great comeback story from the pandemic. However, a pair of downtown business owners said their customers are not struggling to find available parking. Jennifer McCoy, co-owner of McCoy Goldsmith & Jeweler on Main Street, said parking spaces outside her business already are monitored well by city staff and that available spots only become scarce during weekend nights. We see the parking meters very diligently enforced on our block, McCoy said. It hasn't been an issue for us. Dina Kurt, manager at River Lights Bookstore on Main Street, said she also has not heard from customers complaining about a lack of available nearby parking spots. She added that she often provides customers with change to continue to feed their meters while they shop. People from out of town get panicky all the time about their meters, she said. I don't have people saying I can't find a parking spot. You are listening to, as well as I can put it together, a Friday, January 20th edition of the Telegraph Herald, reminding my listeners that there was no print edition nor electronic edition to read from, so I'm piecing together the news as they've updated it. 
But you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicap. This is Ken reading from bits and pieces of the Friday, January 20th articles from the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. And we now turn to today's obituaries. Elise A. Wishheimer, Piasta. Elise Ann Wishmeyer, 16 of Piasta, passed away on Tuesday, January 17th at her home, surrounded by her loving family. Visitation for Elise will be held at the Rife Funeral Home in Piasta, Sunday, January 22nd, from 2 to 7 p.m., preceded by a prayer service at 1.30. A massive Christian burial will be held for Elise at St. John the Baptist Catholic Church in Piasta, at 10.30 a.m. Monday, January 23rd, with Rev. Michael Schuler presiding. Burial will be held in St. John the Baptist Cemetery in Centralia. Elise was born May 15, 2006, in Dubuque, daughter of Scott and Laurie Lawless Wishmeyer. She received her education at Piasta Elementary and Drexler Middle School. She was an active participant in track, volleyball, and softball. Elise was a junior at Western Dubuque High School in Epworth. Her interest in serving others to make a difference in the community led her to involvement in the service learning program. Elise was kind, funny, faith-filled, and courageous. She was a responsible student, a wonderful friend to many, a loving daughter, sister, niece, cousin, and granddaughter. She was a member of St. John the Baptist Parish in Piasta. Elise enjoyed family time, snuggling with her dogs, Bear and Ace, babysitting, and loved spending time at the beach. In March 2020, Elise was diagnosed with brain cancer. She received oncology radiology treatment at the University of Iowa Children's Hospital and was surrounded by an amazing medical team. Our princess warrior battled this cancer journey with grace, perseverance, strength, and humility while guided by faith. Throughout her cancer journey, we chose faith over fear. Faith was the foundation that guided us each day to live with hope and grace. A memorial has been established in honor of Elise Ann Wishmeyer. Elise wants people to remember to be good and do good in the world. A video tribute may be viewed and online condolences sent to the family at www.rifefuneralhomeinc.com. Our hearts are full of gratitude for all who helped her. Shirley A. Gall, Dyersville. Shirley A. Gall, 67, of Dyersville, passed away Monday, January 16th at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City. Visitation will be held from 3 to 7 p.m. Sunday, January 22nd, at Kramer Funeral Home in Dyersville, where a vigil service will begin at 4 p.m. Visitation will continue at Kramer Funeral Home from 9 to 10 a.m. prior to funeral mass. A massive Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Monday, January 23rd at St. Francis Xavier Basilica in Dyersville, with burial in the church cemetery. Reverend Philip Aguirre, will officiate with Deacon Dave Loki assisting. Shirley was born March 20, 1955, in Manchester, the daughter of Leo and Virginia Meyer Gall. 
after Shirley graduated from Edgewood Colesburg CSD in 1973, she spent many years working as a housekeeper and nanny. Shirley was a long-term employee at Ertl's and worked a few years at Kinsinger's. She finished her career at Helly's Farm Equipment. In addition to her career in finance, Shirley taught religion classes in multiple communities for over 50 years. She was an active member of the Catholic Daughters of America, St. Rose Court 350. Shirley enjoyed spending time with family and friends, playing cards, and playing bingo. She... Esther M. Stearman. Esther M. Stearman, 99, of Dubuque, died Saturday, January 14th, at her home. Visitation will be from 9 until 10.45 a.m. Monday, January 23rd, at Holy Spirit Parish, Holy Ghost Catholic Church. The massive Christian burial for Esther will be 11 a.m. Monday, January 23rd, at Holy Spirit Parish, Holy Ghost Catholic Church, with Father Stephen Garner as the celebrant. Burial will be in Mount Calvary Cemetery in Dubuque. Esther was born March 27, 1923, in Prairie du Wisconsin, the daughter of John R. and Julia A. Stulke-Czech. On July 22, 1946, she married Laverne L. Stearman at St. John's Catholic Church in Prairie du He died June 13, 2009. She attended a one-room school in Northeast of Prairie du Chien. She excelled in 4-H homemaking activities as a child. She was an active member of the Holy Ghost Rosary Society, Tri-State Garden Club, and volunteered at Stonehill Care Center and the Dubuque Arboretum. She will be greatly missed for her baking skills. Memorials have been established for Assisi Village, Holy Spirit Parish, and the Dubuque Arboretum and Botanical Gardens. Hoffmanschneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory is in care of the arrangements. A photo tribute can be viewed and condolences sent to the family by visiting Esther's obituary at www.hskfhcares.com. Velma A. Hopman. Velma A. Spielbauer Hopman, 92, of Dubuque, passed away Wednesday, January 18th. Visitation will be 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, January 20th at Church of the Nativity, 1225 Alta Vista Street, Dubuque, followed by a prayer service at 7. Funeral Mass will be 1030 a.m. Saturday, January 21st at Church of the Nativity with additional visitation 930 a.m. until Mass. Burial will be in Mount Calvary Cemetery in Dubuque. Local arrangements entrusted with Hockman Meyer Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Bellevue. Velma was born October 8, 1930, in North Bena Vista, Iowa, the daughter of John, Jack, and Marie Schmidt Spielbauer. She attended Immaculate Conception Academy in her youth and later on married James Jim J. Hopman in 1950. Together they moved to St. Catharines in 1953, then to Mason City in 1977, and returned to Dubuque in 1992. Velma enjoyed the beauty of travel with her family, particularly adventures on the family bus. She was known for her famous pumpkin bread, with loaves at the ready for hungry grandchildren and greats when they visited. Above all, Velma cherished time spent with her beloved family and enjoyed watching them grow. She was a longtime member of the Church of the Nativity and was devoted to her faith. A bright light and gentle soul, 
Velma will be truly missed by all who knew and loved her. A memorial fund has been established in Velma's memory. Online condolences may be expressed to the family at www.hockmanfuneralhome.com. Susan K. Kiefer. Susan K. Dodd Prohaska Kiefer, age 85, of Dubuque, passed away Monday, January 16th at Mount Carmel Bluffs following a long battle with dementia. Massive Christian burial will be 11 a.m. Monday, January 23rd at St. Raphael's Cathedral with Reverend Monsignor Daniel J. Nepper officiating. Burial will be in the East Dubuque Cemetery. Visitation will be from 1 to 4 p.m. Sunday at the Miller Funeral Home in East Dubuque, where the parish prayer service will be at 12.30 p.m. Sunday. Susan was born July 28, 1937 in Dubuque, the daughter of George C. and Helen Wolfe Dodd. She was raised by her uncle and aunt, Vern and Violet Vi White. On October 7, 1961, she was united in marriage to John J.B. Prohaska at St. Mary's Church in East Dubuque. He preceded her in death on April 20, 2008. She later married Richard J. Dick Kiefer, June 10, 2011, at St. Raphael Cathedral. Sue was an artist and organizer. Her first job was at the Dubuque Co-op Dairy that lasted for nine years, where she worked for the fountain and sold farm supplies. For the next 15 years, she was a waitress at the Circle Supper Club and later at Timmerman's Supper Club, both in East Dubuque. While working at the Circle, Sue won a $500 World Series pool and used the money to start her own business called Sue's This and That Shop. Soon, she bought Elaine's Crafts, a shop in the Nestler Center in Dubuque. Sue was the owner-operator of Cable Car Uniques and president of the Cable Car Square Association. Sue had been selling her artwork for some time and soon was teaching art herself, a continuous career for her. Sue sold her oil paintings in a gallery in Kingston, New York. Locally, she sold her paintings in her own shop and at Creative Touch, one of her best outlets. She also operated Galena Accents in Galena, Illinois. Sue was an active member of the Antiques Study Club, the Art Association, and the Old House Enthusiasts Club. She was formerly a Dubuque Fest chairperson for several years. Online condolences may be left for the family at www.millerfhed.com. Michael J. Buddy, Asbury. Michael J. Buddy, 77, of Asbury, died Thursday, January 19th. Visitation will be held from 3 to 6.45 p.m. Monday, January 23rd at Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory, 3860 Asbury Road, where a prayer service will follow. A massive Christian burial for Michael will take place at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, January 24th at Church of the Resurrection. Burial will be in Mount Calvary Cemetery at a later date. Ambrosia Santiago Matum, Galena. Ambrosia Santiago Matum, 23, of Galena, died Tuesday, January 10th. Visitation will be held from 2 to 6 p.m. Sunday, January 22nd, at Furlong Funeral Chapel in Galena, where arrangements are pending. Domingo Lopez Marcos, Galena. 
Domingo Lopez Marcos, 36, of Galena, died Tuesday, January 10th. Visitation will be held from 2 to 6 p.m. Sunday, January 22nd, at Furlong Funeral Chapel in Galena, where arrangements are pending. Carol Moorman, Palmer, Alaska. Carol Moorman, 79, of Palmer and formerly of Dubuque, died Monday, January 9th. A celebration of life will be held at 1 p.m. Saturday, January 21st at St. John Lutheran Church in Palmer. Cremation Society of Alaska is assisting the family. Geraldine M. Goodman. Geraldine M. Jerry Goodman, 88, of Dubuque, died Wednesday, January 18th. Visitation will be held from 9.30 to 10.45 a.m. Friday, January 27th, at St. Columkill's Catholic Church, where a massive Christian burial will follow at 11 a.m. Eaglehoff Seagert and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory, 2569 John F. Kennedy Road, is assisting the family. Merlin A. White, Worthington. Merlin A. White, 84, of Worthington, died Wednesday, January 18th. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Monday, January 23rd, at Kramer Funeral Home in Dyersville. Graveside services will take place at 11 a.m. Tuesday, January 24th, at St. Paul's Catholic Cemetery in Worthington. Jack R. Downer. Jack R. Downer, Pinehurst, from Pinehurst, North Carolina. Jack Downer, 98, of Pinehurst and formerly of Dubuque, died Sunday, December 18th. Services will take place at 2 p.m. Sunday, January 22nd, at Community Congregational Church in Pinehurst. We'll take a little look at our opinion page. We do have the Friday short takes from the editorial staff representing the opinion of the editorial staff of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. And our first one, our opinion, electric vehicle fleet goal, a good example. For decades, city officials have touted Dubuque as a green city, working to address sustainability on multiple fronts. Dubuque officials plan to replace every city-owned vehicle with an electric-powered alternative by 2045, continues that legacy of walking the talk on addressing carbon emissions. Back in 2006, then-Mayor Roy Buell committed Dubuque to reducing its carbon emissions to 7% below 1990 levels by 2010. The city nailed that goal. Officials then set the loftier goal of cutting greenhouse gas emissions by 50% of a 2003 benchmark by the year 2030. Announcing that intention and efforts to achieve it won the city a 2014 award from the White House as a climate change champion. But there's still much work to be done before 2030 and after. Swapping out the city's 244 vehicles with electric alternatives can't be done overnight. A nearly 25-year timeline is a realistic approach that will allow city-owned vehicles to be replaced by electric ones gradually as gas-powered vehicles age. The plan dovetails with the Electrification Rationale and Implementation Guidelines recently approved by Dubuque City Council members, calling for 16% of city vehicles to be electric by 2025 and 50% by 2032. 
As the community works toward reducing carbon emissions over time, it's great to see the city lead by example with this plan. Our next short take, a warm welcome home to Matt Wessels, the Zwingle Iowa teen who has battled a congenital heart defect for all of his 13 years. Matt got rousing cheers from a gathering of friends and family this week when he returned from a nearly three-week stay at University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital in Iowa City, where he received a heart transplant last month. The son of Amanda and Brian Wessels, Matt is all too familiar with the Children's Hospital. The help and hope he received there helped lead to the creation of one of the biggest grassroots fundraising efforts in the area. Matt's story, along with that of the late Sarah Rice, inspired the launch of local nonprofit research for the kids. Sarah Rice was Amanda Wessel's cousin and battled a cancerous brain tumor for more than two years before her death at age 22 in 2010. The amazing medical care provided at Stead led the Wessels and Rice families to start the nonprofit, which held its 14th annual poker run, Ride Drive, fundraiser in September. To date, the organization has raised more than $2.46 million for pediatric brain tumor and heart defect research programs at Stead Family Children's Hospital. Here's to Matt. Glad to see you're back on the family farm, surrounded by so much love. And our third piece? It was good to see Dubuque City Council members pump the brakes in regard to creating a $10 million park at the former Blum County Company scrapyard at 16th and Elm Streets. They should keep pumping. When Leisure Services Department officials first threw out the idea of the multi-million dollar project in 2019, council members were surprised to hear the plan, which even Leisure Service officials called audacious. Now, as the idea persists, it's critically important that city officials stick to the plan of first completing a comprehensive parks master plan, which will serve as a roadmap for future parks and recreation development. That's the lens through which this can and should be considered. One thing is certain. Plans for the re-imaged Comiskey Park, already well used and less than a mile away, should take precedent over any new plans to develop a different park. Also worth noting, while the Blum property's location on one of the busiest rail lines in town might have been an ideal home for a scrap metal yard, seems less so for a park. Its proximity to the Iowa Department of Corrections Elm Street Residential Facility also conjures up a less-than-park-like atmosphere. Council members sounded doubtful this proposal would get much traction, and that's the right call. Finding some more tri-state news we have from Monticello. Police. Monticello homeowner justified in shooting intruder who was armed masked. Authorities said Thursday that a man was wearing a mask and was armed when he broke into the former home in Monticello last week and was fatally shot by the homeowner. Authorities also said it appears that the homeowner was justified in shooting the intruder, Patrick M. O'Brien, 30, who was pronounced dead at the scene. 
While this investigation is ongoing, preliminary indications and evidence uncovered on scene supports the conclusion that the use of deadly force was justified under the circumstances, states a press release from Monticello Police Chief Britt Smith. Authorities previously reported that Scotty A. Harden, 44, called 911 at 1.48 a.m. January 11th to report a break-in in progress at his residence at 309 South Sycamore Street. As police responded to the residence, Harden armed himself with a firearm. Thursday's release included additional details about what happened next. During the course of the break-in, Patrick O'Brien, who was masked and armed, gained entry to the home by breaking out a basement window, the release states. Harden was home with his 10-year-old son. Upon seeing the armed intruder emerge from the basement, Mr. Harden discharged his firearm three times and the intruder was shot twice and died on scene, the release states. Harden and his son were not injured. The release does not include a possible motive for the break-in, but court documents filed in May in relation to a criminal case listed O'Brien's address at that time as 309 South Sycamore Street. Court documents filed in September in relation to a civil case state that O'Brien at that time was living in Oxford Junction, but that he previously lived at 309 South Sycamore. We have one more piece from Dubuque Tri-States. Economic expert voices anticipation of recession at Dubuque Chamber Luncheon. An economic expert on Thursday said he expects a recession to affect the country this year, though he does not anticipate that it will be severe or lengthy. Elliot Eisenberg, a nationally known economist, was the featured speaker at Dubuque Area Chamber of Commerce's 2023 forecast luncheon. About 250 people attended the event at Grand River Center. Eisenberg spoke at length about the economic signs indicating a recession will happen in the coming months, pointing to the workforce shortage and Federal Reserve policymakers continuing to raise interest rates. We are going to have a recession, he said. I would bet my left hand that we will have a recession. The recession won't be bad, but it will be there. He said he expects the recession to begin around mid-year, though it could be as early as April. Signs of a recession already have arrived, Eisenberg said, as stimulus money provided to individuals during the COVID-19 pandemic now has gone away. Now, he said, Americans have an average savings rate of 2.4%, the lowest nationally since 2005. It suggests that people can't keep up with their bills anymore, he said. This is not a good sign. If we have a decent economy, but the savings rate is plummeting, that makes me a little nervous. Goods are getting easier to get, and at the same time, people are not buying them. Part of the economy is weakening. Eisenberg also said a recession has followed 10 of the 13 times the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates since 1955. The Federal Reserve voted in December to raise the interest rate to 4.5%, and Eisenberg said he expects that rate to grow to 4.87% in March. He said this is the fastest the rate has gone up since 1981. Eisenberg also spoke about the workforce struggles affecting the country. Effects of the COVID-19 pandemic continue to impact the number of available workers, he said, as many people either retired, died, quit their jobs, or failed to return to work due to barriers such as childcare. If in three years you haven't worked, you aren't coming back to work, he said. 
The rate of people across the country quitting their jobs is up from before the COVID-19 pandemic, Eisenberg said. And the U.S. job market now has two jobs available for every unemployed person. This labor market makes a snare drum look loose and relaxed, Eisenberg said. People are quitting their jobs because there are so many jobs. Despite these challenges and signs of an impending recession, Eisenberg said he expects that inflation already has peaked at above 7% and will continue to go down. The U.S. Department of Labor reported last week that inflation was at 6.5% for the 12 months ending in December. Eisenberg also said he expects that a recession would not last long. The recession will be over by the end of 2023 or the beginning of 2024, he said. That's the best case scenario. Now we have our weekend buzz, and we have five things to check out this weekend. Illuminate the Night Hike, New Wine Park, Friday, New Wine Park, 15971 New Wine Park Lane in New Vienna, 530 to 730. A one-mile loop of trail will be illuminated for self-led hikes through the winter forest. Visitors can stop by the bonfire before or after their hikes. Registration is required in advance due to limited parking. Mission is free, but donations can be made when registering. Snow Sculpting 101 with Hugh McCarran. Saturday, Dubuque Museum of Art, 701 Locust Street, 10 a.m. to noon. Veteran snow sculptor Hugh McCarran will discuss what goes into competing at the national level and will show share rather tops for those interested in working with snow. Mission is free. Luminaria Walk at Casper Bluff. Saturday, Casper Bluff Land and Water Reserve, 870 South Pilot Knob Road in Galena. 6 to 8 p.m., explore the reserve and adjacent Casper Creek National Cemetery, or Natural Cemetery, excuse me, after dark, where trails will be illuminated. Communal bonfires will be burning to keep walkers warm. In case of inclement weather, the event will be moved to Saturday, January 28th. No registration needed. Admission is free, but donations are welcome. More information, 815-858-9100. You have been listening to what I could put together as best as I could, the Friday, January 20th edition of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald from Ken and from Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print handicapped, where you not only get the Monday through Friday Telegraph Herald, but so very, very, very much more. So get out there and explore what Iris can offer you. Until next week, when maybe we'll have a complete paper on the screen, this is Ken, signing off.